0: you <laughs> Hi, folks, it's Voss here from dot com. .com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. Oh, my God, another one, another podcast of hundreds. What do we do with their time? Uh, So today we've got a most excellent guest on. He is a brilliant uh, diplomat and uh, writer as well. He's authored 14 books, so we're going to have him talking about his latest book today. To see the video version of this, you want to go to youtube.com and type in the words Chris Voss. You may have heard of that guy. Uh, and by doing so, you'll be able to hit the bell notification button and get all the notifications of all the cool things that are happening. And you get to feel like you're really a part of something, like a family, like a journey, if you will. So make sure you do that as well. Refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives, thecvpn.com or go to chrisvosspodcastnetwork.com. You can subscribe and see all nine podcasts over there. You can also follow me on goodreads.com forward slash Chris Voss for all the books you're reading and great authors we've interviewed. You can also follow us on Facebook groups. There's the Facebook group uh, uh, facebook.com for the Chris Foss show. Check that out. (laughs) Uh, Today, Richard Haass is on the show, Doctor Richard Haass, I should say. He is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. You may have seen him on a lot of the TV shows talking about uh, foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera. He's an experienced diplomat and policy maker. He served as the senior Middle East advisor to President George H. W. Bush, and as a director of the policy planning staff under the Secretary of State Colin Powell. He's a recipient of the Presidential Citizens Medal, uh, the State Department's Distinguished Honor Award, and the Tipperary International Peace Award. He is also the author, as I mentioned, of 14 books on foreign policy and international relations, as well as an editor, uh, including uh, the book, A World in Disarray. His latest book, more we're going to be talking about today, The World, A Brief Introduction. Welcome to the show. How are you, Richard? I'm great, Chris. Great to be with you awesome sauce it's good to have you on the show uh do you want to give us your plugs your dot coms where you want people to look you up on the websites and uh order your book as well
1: uh well book can be found uh penguin on their site amazon cfr.org which is actually let's go with cfr.org the reason is you can find me and my book but also our website really is a great resource about the world and we're not politically biased we don't have an agenda we also don't accept money from any government, so you'll actually get straight analysis. So I would I would hope that if people are interested in what's going on in the world, uh, they didn't get overloaded by the debates, which barely mentioned the world, they can, uh, they can go to CFR.org.
0: And you guys are a nonpartisan organization, to my understanding, correct? Sure. Yes,
1: okay, yeah, great. we're a nonpartisan. And just for the record, you know, I've worked for four presidents. I've worked for a Democratic president. I've worked for three Republican uh, presidents, and... For most of my career, at least, maybe this makes me a dinosaur, Chris. I never thought of foreign policy as a particularly partisan undertaking. I would have been—you could have impressed me really hard on this show, and I would have been hard pressed to say what exactly is a Democratic foreign policy as opposed to Republican. There was actually considerable overlap and continuity. So I come out—I come out of that—that you know, that world.
0: All right. So let's get you on the record then. Which president of the four was the best? No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to put you on the spot.
1: I'll say that? I will say I actually think uh, forty-one. What do you George want? Herbert Walker Bush, uh, I think, was one of the great uh, foreign policy presidents, certainly of the modern era. I think the greatest was Truman uh, after World War II. And he, what he did, and he had great people around him, set the foundation for the Cold War. And you know, the last 70, 75 years, for all of our mistakes, whether Iraq or Vietnam, what have you, it's been an amazing run, if you think about it. Uh, we haven't had a great power war. The United States has flourished economically. Democracy has been uh, on the rise around the world. The average person, I know right now we're we're suffering with COVID, but the average person in this country lives a decade longer. It's been an amazing run of uh, history. And I think American foreign policy deserves uh, more than a little uh, credit. Truman, I think, is the greatest president of this period in foreign policy. But I would put 41, President Bush the father, uh, as as, uh, number two.
0: All right. So who is the worst out of the four? No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that either. I'm just (laughs) kidding. We won't go there. Okay. There we go. Uh, So what motivated you want to write this book and put it out?
1: Well, it gets back to what we were just talking about. What's so interesting to me is the world matters as never before. We see it with COVID. What began in Wuhan, China didn't stay there. You got these fires out West linked to climate change. We just marked the 19th anniversary of 9-11. A bunch of terrorists trained in Afghanistan killed 3000 people in this country in a day. So, so, the world matters in all sorts of ways. Yet most Americans don't see the connection between the world and their lives. They don't see the connection between what the U S does and what it means out there. And the reasons are uh, you don't study it in elementary school or high school. For the most part, you can go to virtually any two or four year college in this country. And while, while it's on, in the curriculum, Virtually none of them require that you take a course about international relations in order to get your your diploma. So most Americans leave campus if they go to a campus of uh, essentially illiterate about uh, international affairs. The morning shows, the nightly news shows barely cover it. There are tons of stuff on the internet. The problem is there's tons of stuff on the internet. And no one's been generous enough to provide those yellow post-it notes, uh, notes saying, read this, ignore that. So for any number of reasons, and look, look at where we are now. Here we are. We're about to elect a president. or a few days away. Uh, we've had two presidential debates, a vice presidential debate, any number of town halls. If 10 or 5% of the time was devoted to international relations to foreign policy, it's a lot. And that's why I wrote this book. I basically wanted to try to fill this space to give Americans what I think they need in order to be more informed, Uh, citizens. There's that. And then I also, I wanted to help people as they go about their lives, whether it's career, should I, should I do something in this area in in government or elsewhere, investing, business, what have you. I wanted to basically help get people up to speed, but more than anything, uh, it was Jefferson who said that democracy depends upon there being an informed citizenry. and My real concern is that in America, too many of us are just not informed enough to make wise choices when we vote and to hold the people who hold power i want to hold them to account we can only hold them to account if we're if we're knowledgeable
0: exactly for informed citizenry as you mentioned uh so give us a a kind of sky view overview of the book as it is
1: okay what the book tries to do is one give people the basic history uh how did we get to where we are big emphasis on really the 20th century the two world wars the cold war and what's happened since the end of the Cold War three decades ago. And then try to introduce people to the major regions of the world, Europe, East Asia, South Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, Africa, give you a kind of a feeling for each one of those parts of the world. Then to talk about the big global issues, I mentioned climate change, terrorism, proliferation, infectious disease, trade. Uh, What makes this period of history so interesting is you don't just have the typical stuff of a rising China, or uh, a cranky Russia, or a messy Middle East, but you have these global issues that can really affect our lives as never before. And then at the end, I try to put it all together and give people a sense of how, how to understand the world and, again, how it works, why why it matters. And I, Look, in 300 pages, uh, you can't tell everybody everything, and that's not the goal. If, if the book has a subtitle, a brief introduction, I had to uh, leave out a whole lot. So the idea, again, was to to give people a, a foundation and you know what I really hope also is this won't be the only book or the last book they will they will they will read on the subject
0: well i'm hoping you'll keep writing books on the world because uh, if we go full like planet of the apes that that could be bad so <laughs> we want this series to continue uh you know i i totally agree with you uh you know my mother was a teacher for years she complained about how they were taking away curriculums like history civics uh you That's know they thing. took away i think band and art um and you know you and and she says she would say for decades she's like we're raising a really dumber generation that doesn't know what's going on and then you uh, see I
1: interrupt. your mother was a hundred percent right Uh, think about it, the only thing virtually every American has to do is go to school through the age of 16. After that, you can kind of chart your own course. So that's our one chance to to get at people. And the idea, and you're right, we've had things like, I'm not against kids learning about computers or STEM, you know, the basic math and science, that's important. And how do I get it? Uh, But uh, I really worry. And I think we're paying a real price for it as a society. We don't teach civics. You're a hundred percent right. Uh, people don't really know about American democracy, how it, why it's special, why it needs to be protected, what it takes to protect it, and then they don't know about the world. and, and Think about it: a kid is graduating from high school now or college; he or she will be what their late teens or twenty. Their life will pretty much parallel the 21st century. They were born right at the beginning of the century. They've got to know about this world if they're going to succeed in it. And I just worry that we're not teaching it and then the media is not really covering it or covering it in a serious way. And uh, I just worry about the implications of that. Again, I I come back to why do we think it's all going to work out? History suggests things don't just work out. And I also (laughs) think if I also think if Americans don't know about the world. I'm curious to see what you think about this. I think the default reaction is then isolationism. If you don't know about the world, then you're going to say, well, it doesn't matter, or I don't have time. I'm too busy. And the danger then is we we pull back from the world, and we may get tired of the world, but the last I checked, the world's got a lot of energy, and it doesn't show any signs about getting tired with us.
0: And and the thing you detail in the book, and you go through an incredible history, and you lay out the foundation of it, Uh, one of the things I really liked about the book is – is you know I grew up as a child I grew up reading a lot about the generals and military I was really into the military and and building aircraft carriers and I just love the whole and I love the strategy reading about Eisenhower and 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 all the different generals that were in World War 2 and, and McCarthy I think it was and and others and then <clears throat> I remember reading 1,000 Days uh, about JFK's thing and just really seeing the connection of the dots and how America does this, and then this, this stuff either happens good or bad, uh, sometimes bad when we're putting our fingers on scales. Um, and, but I never really got into it. But then, like you say, I, I went into this sort of, uh, I'm going to do my business and make some money and chase the girls around town. And then 9-11 woke me up, and I went, wow, I better start understanding what's going on in the world, because evidently some people outside of my little American exceptionalism hate me and they want to blow us up and I better find out why. And that's why I started re-exploring what was going on in the world. And I think that's, what's so great about your book.
1: Well, thank you. And again, 9-11 ought to have been a wake up call. Uh, for some it was, uh, for, but for many it was not. Uh, um, maybe COVID-19 will be, that we'll realize mm-hmm. that uh, when a disease breaks out in some remote part of the world, it has potential consequences. Obviously, if you're living in California now, you don't need a lot of lectures about climate change. Uh, You're seeing it out your your front door. So, but those are painful lessons. Those are expensive lessons. And what I'm hoping is people get a bit of an understanding, a history out of this. And they realize that one, not one, the world matters, but two, we still have more influence over it than anybody else. And it's in our own self-interest to do certain things that uh, people shouldn't think of foreign policy as an act of philanthropy foreign policy is something out of our own self-interest. And I want people to, to feel that connection.
0: And it's really is a concise book. I mean, you really get into it. You, you go through the details of each of the countries, how we got here. What's interesting to me, too, is like one of my favorite parts was the Woodrow Wilson part where you're talking about the League of Nations and 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 how, you know, the isolationism, kind of what we're going through lately, the past few years maybe, where we, we don't feel the world is important and we've gotten to the isolation. And you see some of the fallout that hit, kind of the impact of a stroke. Um, you go through all of that and how some of these things really led. Uh, One other uh, important thing that I've always looked at was how Obama treated uh, Syria and how letting that slide created just an incredible uh, blow up of populism uh, in the world and and these migrants and and everything that, that created some of this racial division. And it's always been interesting to me, especially reading your book, you can see that the decisions that are made. And, and how they turn into, you know, these huge roads that we end up going down that, that impact lives, kill millions sometimes, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Look, absolutely. And you, know, you raise a couple of really good uh, points. One is uh, Some of this history really resonates now. If you look at the run-up to World War I, you look at the aftermath, world, uh, the aftermath of World War I and the run-up to World War II, you look at what we did at the beginning of the Cold War, there's real lessons. There's do's and don'ts that we ignore at our peril. Obama's thing with uh, the chemical weapons in Syria after Assad crossed the red line and after all the threats, we didn't do anything. To me, that's really interesting because it shows what you don't do can be every bit as uh, consequential at what it is you do do. So we made mistakes. What Bush did in Iraq was a big mistake, uh, uh, totally. But also what Obama didn't do in Syria was uh, was a, uh, a, 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 a serious mistake. You know, there's, there's lots of lines about history. My, you know, my favorite, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think that's true. There's there's lessons to learn. And I think we ought to we ought to be kind of pitch our ear a little bit to the rhyming about what sort of situations in the past have some uh, parallels to our own. And are there some guides to either what we ought to do or what we ought to avoid?
0: My favorite quote is myself, which is uh, the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history. So there, by goes Then is that a Chris Voss? Can I? That's can a Chris I, Voss I, quote. I if think I it's a modified. Do I have to attribute it? Uh, yes, please. If you would, uh, <laughs> okay. no money is is needed, but just to uh, some yes, idiot on the on the web told me this uh so uh but i really like the book because you really get into it it's very concise it's a very quick read it's a very interesting read um and you know i meet a lot of people in the world you know after 9-11 i really got into it okay let's find out what the world's about what's going on in the world and and how important it is and, and i'm a strategic brain because i i come from i don't know for some reason i just have a strategic brain and so i like to look at these things i like to look at the cause and effect you know where things bloom out out from one bad decision and uh uh also you know one of the things that kind of i don't know if you intended it for be a theme in the book but talking about globalization and isolation and the cause and effects throughout the book of of when america went no we don't want to deal with that and then the fallout from that that was kind of interesting that's a
1: big motive for the book uh you know look to me globalization is a reality how we deal with it that's a choice, but to deny it seems to me to be folly. And yeah, I have, I have two biases in the book. One is I am against isolationism. Uh, I think the world matters just because we ignore it doesn't mean it's going to ignore us. And the second is unilateralism. I, I, I've yet to find something we can do in the world better that by ourselves than doing it with others. And the great advantage this country has is we get up in the morning, we have dozens of countries in Europe and Asia in particular who are disposed to work with us, their allies, their partners, whether it's dealing with China or, or dealing with terrorism or what have you, that's a great advantage. So while it seems to me it's a major mistake to toss that away and to try to go about our business by ourselves. So yeah, those are the this is mainly a book to educate. But if I have two lessons or two themes I'd like the reader to take, is one, You know, we can't afford to ignore the world. And two, we really should do things with others where at all possible
0: the world and you're very right the world uh you know kind of when we went through kind of uh, you, maybe you call it the age of american exceptionalism the asshole american if you will in the 50s 60s and kind of when we were this superpower that was alone and economically we were we were still the most powerful i think we i think we still are but china is definitely coming down our our shirt tails and given their population if they ever get their stuff together same thing with india and, and you, you cover a lot of this in your book um but we you know I, I, the, for a long time there before Donald Trump, there was what I call the Kardashianism of like the news. Like you and I probably remember the age of, of where when CNN was first up, you could go on CNN. And in fact, State Department people, in my understanding, and the president people would watch it because they would actually be covering wars. There are be people being oh, The Gulf spots. War
1: 30 years ago. I remember being in the White House because I was the Middle East advisor to, to President Bush, the father, working with Brent Scowcroft. I remember, uh, you know, what was the CNN guy, Bernie, I forget his last name, who was under his desk in uh, Baghdad when we were bombing uh,
0: It was Wolf Blitzer and Bernard Shaw, I think.
1: Bernard Bernie Shaw, exactly yeah. right. good memory. And, and often we would be watching CNN to get a sense of how things were playing out there. I mean, and suddenly you felt, uh, you know, in the old days you used to have news cycles. Well, in, C- in part because of CNN, we just had, then had one cycle we would say something it would be immediately heard in baghdad it might be heard and you couldn't narrowcast if you said something it would be heard in baghdad it would be heard in tel aviv it would be heard in london it would be heard in beijing or moscow and it really changed the way we did business it sped it up and we we learned again uh that you didn't have the luxury of uh of time you, you, and you, again you didn't also have the luxury of of narrowcasting everything was a broadcast
0: yeah and 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 then it became really dissolved to entertainment tv like i say the kardashianism of cnn if you will um where uh, before trump it just it just seemed to really hit a bottom and of course a lot of people weren't subscribing to news it, it seemed to lose its value and I think there's uh, a book
1: in that chris i think you've got it from kissinger to kardashian and i think uh <laughs> I think you've got it bookended there i think it's big i think it's got big potential
0: I'll, I'll get I'll see if I can get kissinger and it. i can't I've always tried to do a Kissinger impression, but I never can uh, but uh no i you know I meet a lot of people and I'm sure you do too uh I don't know why that's a f- fact we, but I meet a lot of people that are Americans that go, oh, why do we spend money in these countries? Why do we care? We waste all these money you know supporting these people and and f them, and you know, and you're like, do you do you understand how like, and you lay out in the book the the foundations of why we tried to spread democracy, why we dealt with the Cold War, and it's really important that, and like you say, that people understand why we do this, why we spend that money, and how that keeps safety to our shores. Well,
1: thank you. There's that. Also, the amount of money we spend, and the numbers sound large, and they are large. We spend what 750 billion a year on defense. But as a percentage of our economy, it's actually much lower than we averaged during the Cold War. So, yes, we should make sure every penny we spend is smart, but it's not bankrupting us. We proved during for decades that we could spend much higher levels of our economy on defense and still do well here at home. And also, our, we have, look, God knows we have any number of domestic problems, but in many cases, it's not because of not spending enough. Take health care. We spend far more than the other developed countries per capita on healthcare. We spend twice as much as the average of the other advanced economies. The last I checked, we're not twice as healthy. We don't live twelve twice as long. So to me, the lesson is, in many cases, it's not how much you spend. It's how you spend it. And But I try to – yeah, another message, fair enough, in the book is I, I want to discourage people from thinking – Every dollar we spend on the world is a dollar taken out of our pocket at home. We need to do both. In the 21st century, national security has an international dimension and a domestic dimension. And they each affect one another. So if we don't fix things here at home with COVID, with the economy, we're not going to be much good for the world. But also, if we ignore the world, it's going to make it much harder to deal with our challenges here at home. We've got to do both.
0: Um, one of the other things I wanted to ask you is, uh, or talk about, is I liked how the book got into the demographics of age. You really, you can, and that's part of the strategy—the the mix of, you know, you can't just look at China and go, "Well, China monolith." Um, you got into like the aging populations and 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 how that's going to have effect on them in the future, and of course, us as well. Yeah, no, you're
1: right. Uh... I le- it's one of the things I learned most in writing the book. You know, I've been working in this business for 40 years, and I learned a hell of a lot writing it. You know, China's now, what, 1.3, 1.4 billion people, about one out of every five or six in the world. But it's going to shrink. It's going to get older, and it's going to shrink in, in, in numbers. India is soon going to overtake it, uh, and then it's uh, gradually going to taper off. Africa is the part of the world where the numbers are coming from. Africa's going to grow by over hmm. a billion people hmm. over the next 30, 40 years. So whereas in Europe and in Asia, there's a problem where you have not enough working age people for all the elderly, in Africa, it's more the opposite. You're going to have so many young people uh, in their prime. And the question is, can you find jobs for all these, these young people? We've actually got an interesting thing in this country. We're one of the more balanced demographies and large part, interestingly enough, again, because of immigration. (laughs) But we, <laughs> uh, So we have people at all, almost all age. We've got young people. We've got middle-aged people. We've got elderly. But we're not out of whack. It's one of our advantages unless we screw it up.
0: Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't realize we're actually one of the best, I think, in the world, to my understanding or what I've read, at integrating immigrants. Like a lot of countries like uh, France and stuff, they really have a hard time getting them to, um, to uh, mix in. And, a, and, and I think there's a reason for that. that
1: think about our history this is a country that more than anything else was based on an idea that's it you know we weren't based on a religion uh we weren't based on power we were based on an idea and idea now we didn't always live up to our ideals i get i I understand that but we were when we were a beacon for immigrants and people would come here and we would integrate we basically said we don't care what color you are what your religion is and the rest and again we over time have gotten better at this, though we still got a ways to go to say the least. But the whole idea was you come here, you work hard, you will, you have a chance to succeed. That was you know, the, the, the dream and people from the, the most talented people from all over the world uh, came here. And that, to me is it's one of the reasons we've been so successful. We have been a magnet for talent and talent that often didn't have the chance to fulfill itself in their home country. And you look at the Fortune couple of hundred top companies, a shocking percentage of them are run by immigrants or the kids of immigrants. And that that tells me. So people think of immigration or some people think of immigration as a liability. I see it as one of the great comparative advantages of the United States. Japan doesn't have that. China doesn't have that. We have that if we're smart about it.
0: You know, one of the things you talk about is we we don't see international news really. I mean, I actually have to go to different websites or different apps to see international news like BBC World, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And we don't talk about it on the evening news. Do you think COVID is going to push us towards more isolationist uh, sort of uh, thinking amongst our public?
1: It's a really good question, and it's one I've been asking myself. I can argue it round or flat. There is the argument that it shows we're vulnerable to what happens in the world. Uh, so it's one of the reasons I think this president was wrong to take us out of the world health organization. Yes, it's flawed, but that's the reason you stay in there to make it less flawed. Uh, but I think there's a chance that COVID will help, or uh, lead us to turn inward a bit. It'll add to the sense that we've got to sort ourselves out COVID, uh, the economic consequences, uh, of it, the other problems we have, God knows. Uh, so I think whoever wins this election is going to face, uh, a country that's going to feel the need to focus inward and also our last few international experiences things like Iraq and Afghanistan haven't been exactly good so I think the 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 first instinct of the country is going to be to focus inward the problem is the world's not going to go to us and say okay you Americans we understand go take five years sort yourselves out we'll just kind of we'll cool our heels and wait for you and when you're ready you're welcome it doesn't work that way. And that's that's the problem. That history is not going to wait for us while we sort ourselves out. So again, at the risk, it sounds too cliche, but we're going to have to sort ourselves out at home. At the same time, we stay involved in the world. The good news is we can do that. To me, the question is whether we
0: will. The and it will be very interesting. We we are. I I don't know if uh, in studies of history, you may probably know. I know you know your history better than I do, but there may have been no more consequential uh why divide of two different roads this america is going to be choosing in this election to go down to i mean one is definitely going to be uh, uh probably more open to the world and back to the way we used to have things uh with foreign relations the other may be even more deepening protectionism and isolationism and and uh, nationalism uh what what do you want to talk about either of those roads that we might go down or, well, or what you first see first of all your
1: quality? first of all your analysis is right this is a uh know, yeah, I remember when Goldwater ran against Johnson, which uh, people thought was such a big choice. In retrospect, for all their differences, their similarities uh, were, far, uh, were far greater. This really is a choice. And you may think it's great. You may think it awful. But Donald Trump is an outlier. If you look at every modern American president, uh, beginning with Harry Truman, who was president you know, in 45, and you take through Barack Obama for all their differences, they were essentially playing the game between the 40-yard lines. And this is true of Ronald Reagan and both Bush's, uh, Eisenhower, the Republicans, true of all the Democrats, all within the 40-yard line. Trump's the first president who's playing the game from an enzo. That's fundamentally uh, different. And you see it domestically, but you also see it in, in, in foreign policy, his opposition to alliances and allies. Uh, his, the, you know, I, I dubbed it the withdrawals, a doctrine that we've pulled out of all these agreements and all these uh, institutions, the way he at times fawns over dictators, doesn't place Democrats uh, ahead of what uh, 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 Now I'm not saying he hasn't gotten a few things right. I think he, you know, he he was good to call out China. He's made some progress recently in the middle East. We got a trade deal with Canada and Mexico. So I think there are some things that, that have worked out, but overall, uh, I think he has departed. There's actually a parallel with healthcare, I think he's basically disrupting or dismantling much of American foreign policy from the last three quarters of a century, but he hasn't put anything in its place. And Biden, by by contrast, believes in American foreign policy over the last 70 or 75 years. I think he would have an allies first foreign policy. He would get back into a lot of these arrangements and institutions. The challenge for him, will be what we just talked about. Domestically, this is a country that doesn't have much appetite for the world right now. And second of all, a lot of those arrangements he would get back into are flawed. Mm -hmm. Uh, To get back into the World Health Organization, that ain't going to solve things. To get back into the Paris Agreement on climate, that won't solve things. Or the Iran nuclear deal. So the challenge for a Biden administration, I think, will be how to persuade the American people to stay involved in the world, and then how to really be creative. How do we modernize the machinery out there? Because what we've got is getting pretty long in the tooth, 75 years on, and it's simply not up to the task.
0: If Trump were to win, I mean, are we We would probably see the incredible rise of China um, as a superpower in the world, even more so than they already have become, you think?
1: Well, I think to some extent China's rise will depend on China, and mm-hmm. they've got you know a lot of internal challenges. I think the difference is we won't be able – Trump's inclination – would not be to work with our allies to shape China's rise. Uh, Well, you know, to me, what foreign policy is about is you want to encourage some behaviors and discourage others. Uh, And you do it lots of ways using all your tools, diplomacy, military force, economics, sanctions, what have you. And I think that's not his instinct. His instincts will be to cut this or that deal and to try to do it unilaterally, rather than working with our allies at basically shaping the full range of Chinese... uh, choices. And I think that's just really short sighted. What the Chinese will do is they'll give us some deals. They might say, here, have this trade deal. But Mm -hmm. in the meantime, they're going to do a lot of things that are going to leave us in the world worse off.
0: The, um, you've probably read John Bolton's book uh, And I have too And one of the things that you talk about in the book Is how a lot of these deals These trade deals and and, and different peace deals uh, You know, cemented sort of security in, in the world He pulled us out of a lot of stuff And I guess my question for you is If John Bolton shaves that uh, nasty mustache he has Will he get more dates on Tinder?
1: <laughs> that is one of the great questions of our time uh, I <laughs> lose
0: sleep every night, my friend
1: Uh, i'm gonna try not to focus on your question but you did throw me off my game i'm sorry look uh no but john again i'm not against uh pulling out of things i'm not breaking in and you know getting out of here if it's but it's a big if if you've got something better to put in its place and what to me is so damaging about a lot of what bolton advocates and a lot of what trump has done is that it was uh, like healthcare repeal without replace. So if you've got something better, then sell it to the American people. Get out like allies aren't stupid. If you have a better alternative to some arrangement, they'll sign up. But uh, what I saw was the United States that didn't have anything better. And I'm not claiming that all the agreements we were part of were perfect. Of course they weren't. But unless you've got something better again, why would you? Why would you dismantle them? And also in the process, you create tremendous uncertainty about American reliability and predictability. And And this is a world that's come to depend on us. Our enemies have to know, well, we mean what we say. We're prepared to act. Our friends have to know that we've got their back and we're there for them. If you create a world where the United States can't be counted on, no one knows what we're going to stay committed to, you're going to have countries developing nuclear weapons all over the place. You have other countries appeasing China. You'll have China and Russia and others testing us. Uh, on mondays tuesdays and wednesdays to see what they can get away with and that'll be a nasty nasty world which by the way will really be bad for us and, and you know i met with the this president he, he actually during the campaign when he was running for president four or five years ago i spent time with him he asked to see me we talked through things and what's very he seems the one big thing i felt he, could, he would never take on board is the idea that the benefits of these arrangements was far greater than the cost. It was almost like he was a businessman that only examined the cost side of the ledger. He never got around to the revenues. And I just think he's missing many ways in which the United States is better off with what we've developed and would be worse off if we scuttle it.
0: So uh let me ask you this. So I'm gonna take that as he should save the mustache. <laughs> uh so what keeps Richard Haas up at night? What countries or foreign policy is keeping you up at night and making you pop the, the stomach settlers, the roll aids, you know, going, Oh boy, what do you think?
1: See my I don't know if I have the capacity to surprise you because but you've just demonstrated the capacity to surprise me. Uh but my answer may it's us.
0: See oh. Damn it, we're screwed.
1: I mean, uh, China poses a challenge. Russia poses a threat. Uh, We've got climate and terrorists. And I I get it. It's It's a pretty big agenda. It's a pretty big array of challenges out there. But the last 70, 75 years persuades me that if we act in the world, if we work together with our partners and allies, if we're consistent, if we're serious, we can do okay. The American people will support it. And we will, we will manage, you know, we won't solve all the problems, but we'll manage many. And on balance, the, the benefits will far outweigh the cost. The problem is, I'm not sure we've got the appetite to do that anymore. Gets back wow. to our earlier conversation. A lot of Americans don't see the rationale for doing it. And you've got a leader now who clearly doesn't see the rationale to do it. He's inclined not to do it. So what worries me is that we're going to come up with some crazy mixture of isolationism, and unilateralism we're going to become more and more unpredictable uh, more protectionist on trade and so forth that we're going to basically stop doing the things that are by and large work for us and it's going to create opportunities for bad guys to be even worse and a lot of the people out there who have become, who have been our friends are going to essentially say uh, we can no longer rely on the united states that's a, a very different world so right now i think uh more than anything it depends on us and i'm not confident we're going to make the right choices
0: um wow i did not expect you to say us that got me wow i'm scared now i i do really feel like we look like a wounded animal to the world not only from our politics but you know covid i mean we're number one in covid um but but it's it's, a, it's
1: a form of american exceptionalism we could have done without but uh and it's really affected, it's a, good, it's a good reminder, sorry to interrupt you, I apologize, but it's a good example of, you know, we don't think of certain things as foreign policy, but when we, we're inept, we're incompetent on dealing with a domestic challenge like COVID, it sends a really powerful message to the world that there's something wrong with the United States when we had, we can't deal with race issues peacefully or our politics are dysfunctional. We lose a lot of standing and influence in the world. And uh, I think that's what's going on
0: the and i and you're completely right i mean it's it, it is torn Covid is just torn everything that's wrong with us like open like every scab we had that we were kind of like yeah we can give through that we'll, we'll be fine we'll just kind of go racism our healthcare issues our economy uh the you know whether you want to call it taxation or the distribution of wealth in this country i mean it's it's just open it up and even people like russia with putin who goes Uh, this gives me some toys to play with. Um, It definitely just makes us feel, I I feel like we're a wounded animal almost really.
1: Look, I'm worried about it for us. I'm worried about that enemies will be opportunistic and take advantage of it. I mean, I can't prove it, but it's possible that China did some of what it did in Hong Kong because they knew we were distracted and not, Mm -hmm. uh, not paying attention. I don't know what they might do down the road in the South China sea or with Taiwan What Putin might be tempted to do uh, in Europe. My hunch right now is what might be holding them back is their concern that uh, if Biden were to win, they don't want to start off on the wrong foot with the Mm -hmm. Biden administration. But I think, but if there were a second Trump term, it's quite possible we would be tested because our uh, willingness to to act in ways that would have been considered automatic back when are, you know, people look at what we did to the Kurds. They look now at what looks to be a race to the exits in Afghanistan. So they may think that this is a United States that's no longer prepared to play the, the sort of leading role we uh, played. And if that's the case, they will test us.
0: It's going to be really interesting to see which road we choose on November 3rd or whenever we get the election results or in or whenever the Supreme Court decides what the laws are about. Oh, my God. You know, everyone's like, it's going to be over on November 3rd, Chris. I'm like, no, it's not. Um, But uh, that or Nancy Pelosi. they will just have to put it on the 20th. Uh, So. Uh, with China, there's some interesting things that uh, whoever the next president is going to have to deal with. And certainly, and I think we know Trump's position on the Uyghurs, but also what China's been doing, that a lot of people do not talk about, is they've been taking resources and making a huge amount of resource, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, colonization or scoring or, or control of the African continent. And they've really got their thumb and an edge on what's going on there. And we just seem to be flying blind and ignoring what's going there on there down there. Yeah, China's uh,
1: its so-called Belt and Road Initiative. They're building a lot of infrastructure projects. We everything from ports to roads, but also IT kind of infrastructure. They're doing uh, some in Asia, places like Pakistan. You mentioned Africa, some Latin America. Yeah, we've got to compete. Yeah, you know, to me, that China is doing it. It's their prerogative. They're signing some deals that are really unfortunate. Really, uh, they're kind of like loan sharks in some of these cases. The terms. But we ought to be out there. We have we have foreign aid. The last I check, we have uh, we could do things with trade, uh, mm-hmm. in both threat investment, uh, with bringing students to the United States and so on. So there's there's ways we can and should compete with China, but too often now we're we're not. And that that's and look, China is not banking tremendous goodwill. People saw how how they uh, screwed up with COVID. Uh, people see how that what they're doing to the Uyghurs. They see uh, Hong Kong. China's very heavy-handed. Again, these loan terms are often really draconian. So th- I don't think there's a lot of illusions about China, but you can't beat something with nothing. We've got yeah. uh we gotta get back on the field. And I you know, I hope I I hope we do, and I think we'll be welcomed. We'll be welcomed if we do.
0: I I think so if we if we elect Biden we'll be people will be like, you're back. We missed you. Uh You know, and like you mentioned, the terms are draconian. Uh, I think China, like, sees someone's harbor on a foreclosure of a debt or something along those lines. And I was like, what? And you're just like, wow, okay. (laughs) And also the
1: opportunities to do that sort of thing are going to grow. So many, you know, I've argued that COVID and the pandemic are not a turning point, but what it is going to do is going to weaken a lot of countries economically yeah so countries are going to be people are racking up enormous debt they've got enormous needs unlike us they can't print you know dollars uh, so there's going to be opportunities for china and again we've uh we i think we should be out there offering countries an alternative.
0: Yeah. I, you know, now we're seeing the rise of several different issues too. What really surprised me was the Armenian uh, Azerbaijan sort of issue that's going on right now. Like a lot of people don't even know that's going on because it's not making the news at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, people couldn't find the gorno karabakh on a map. I understand that. And it's a complicated issue within a, a largely Armenian province within a, a larger territory. Uh, you've got Russia, you've got Turkey. This is not a place where we have a deep, long historical uh, involvement. What is the, what to me though, it's interesting. That it's a little bit of a canary in a coal mine. It shows what happens if people feel they can pretty much safely ignore us, that yeah. we're not going to get heavily involved. This is, this is, the, this is a, yet another sign of what I would call a post-American world. We see it in Syria. We see it in Yemen. Uh, to some extent, in Libya, we're seeing it in Nagorno Karabakh. We're beginning to see a world where a lot of uh, locals, or in some cases not locals like Russia and uh, Syria, are are getting involved because they basically say, "Well, we don't really have to reckon with the United States much any uh, much anymore." And what we're what we're going to see is this is a lot messier, uh, a more dangerous a more dangerous world and do you we, think which that, by the way we won't be immune from ultimately
0: do you think that can escalate and spread like that could be a whole new world war Three sort of thing
1: well, at the moment i don't see it i mean mm-hmm. i don't know how the daisy chains connect but i think we you know anytime you have major powers working in proximity to one another, you got to be frightened about an incident incidents could always uh Escalate, but no, I don't. I don't see that in the book I think the most worrisome scenario out there probably two. One would be if Russia probes mm-hmm. in a NATO country the way it's been doing in Ukraine and um, in Eastern Ukraine. The other would be something with China and the United States, say over Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the kinds of scenarios that I think have the you know potential to to escalate in significant ways, and I can't I can't dismiss it uh,
0: either. Do you think if we negotiated to turn over the Kardashian family to whichever? power wants them that would settle that whole dispute no i'm just kidding it's not, <laughs> uh, i was going to ask you too about uh, venezuela i've been re- reading that uh, we might be escalating some stuff in venezuela and getting prepared for something do you see that at all
1: no at the moment i don't see a lot of options i think the government uh, as ugly as it is is pretty entrenched yeah you've got tens of thousands maybe 20, 20, or so cubans there You've got Russian help. You've got a lot of Chinese money. You've got a lot of gangs and former military, probably some current military with guns. I think they're pretty entrenched. The opposition is divided. Uh, it's It's a humanitarian nightmare for Venezuelans trapped in the country, a humanitarian nightmare for those who have become refugees. But at the moment, I just don't see the mechanism for how we, how we, how we change things fundamentally. Sorry to be so pessimistic, No, but at that moment, I, I don't, I don't see how we, and I think at some point the question might be, if we can't bring about the kind of change we want there, does it force you uh, as awful as it is to think about a scenario where you have to say, what would it take, you know, and this administration tried it, you know, are we at all open with them or the Syrians, another awful government, uh, to start talking to them in terms of making an awful situation less bad because uh, you can't overthrow them. And if you can't overthrow them uh, and put something better in their place, is there a way you can make an awful situation less bad? And uh, it's, it's a really uncomfortable way of phrasing it. Uh, but, uh, but at the moment, I don't see how we go from where we are to uh, what what existed in Venezuela not that many decades ago. This was the most successful country. <laughs> In that part of the world had the energy, the oil, an incredibly educated, talented, sophisticated, uh, educated, you know, elite, a thriving democracy and the rest. And look at it now. It is just uh, it's a country that is talking about self-destruction. That mm-hmm. is what that is what i at the moment. I don't quite see how we get it back. I, I, I'm not smart enough to, to see the, the path.
0: I was reading today pompeo's been uh treading about the outer c- cities and some and some implications of military buildup so it would be interesting um, the uh, The Trump administration has been doing this thing and used to run uh, influence on middle eastern policy uh They've been doing this thing where they've been uh, making – so, you know, you can fly from Saudi Arabia into Israel. And and they just announced some recent – more agreements where they're trying to normalize uh, the yep. Arabs with the Israelis and stuff. Do you see that working as a, as a good step towards maybe sol- resolving Middle East peace?
1: I don't think we can use the phrase Middle East peace anymore because there's too many fault lines. Hmm. And then you've got Yemen, Libya, Syria. You've got Iran's problems. I think there's uh what we're seeing is the normalization and it's welcome between some of the Arab countries in Israel. You had Egypt and Jordan decades ago, and now we've got the UAE, Bahrain, and most recently Sudan. So that's great. Different reasons why Uh some countries are worried more about Iran than Israel. Some countries want to get advanced military hardware. Some want to get off the state supporters of terrorism less. So there's, there's, there's incentives, shall we say, but it's a good thing. What it's, you know, what it's not going to do is solve the Palestinian problem. And that's a separate issue. And the reason that's still, I think, so important is that Israel, since it was created 70 odd years ago, uh, has been a, a democratic country and has been a Jewish country. But the problem is with with occupation, one or the other has to go. Either it has to give up its Jewishness if it gives the Palestinians full rights or it gives up its democraticness if it denies them uh, citizenship. I don't want israel to have to make that choice so i still think we need a palestinian state i think it's in israeli self-interest as much as palestinian at the moment though we're not walking in that direction uh the only way these normalizations between arab governments might help would be if it reinforces the message to the palestinians that peace is not going to be delivered to them on a platter they are going to have to negotiate peace themselves with the israelis that won't be easy palestinians are divided israelis are divided but I think that's the, ultimately the only route uh, to, to to get there. But I I, you know, I can't sit here and say I'm optimistic, to be perfectly honest. I'm not.
0: One of the things I did love about your book is you really explain how that whole situation comes together, the issues with it, and what keep it complex. Uh, is there anything else we we uh, didn't mention in your book or, or cover in your book that you want to um, um, put out?
1: Well, again, I would hope that anybody, you know, listening to this or, or, or watching it on on uh youtube rather than focusing on mr bolton's mustache or the kardashians uh what i'd hope is uh they would spend more time Well, like, reading my book is obviously something i'd love them to but i'd also we publish a magazine foreign affairs i'd love them to uh, to try that to go on our website cfr.org to basically just get a little bit more up to speed if you're a parent and you're shelling out all this money for your, your kid to go to uh, to to college maybe you ought to think about uh encouraging them to take a course in this if you're uh you know if you're a university you might want to think about requiring it of your of your students for those who are past that age maybe spending a little bit of time some free time uh either on the internet but i again i I just worry that yeah what i I guess the way i put it is i'm worried because i've learned that uh, good policy doesn't just happen. We talked before about civics. I think we got to do a better job of transmitting the DNA of our democracy from one generation to another. And I think we've got to do better at teaching Americans about the world, to use my word, to make them globally literate. And you know, the book is sort of one way I've tried to uh, do, but that's what I, I would hope that more people in this country would would make something of a commitment to do that uh, one, it 's interesting, it can help with careers, all sorts of possibilities it can help you with your investment, but also uh, as we 've learned the hard way what we'll go again what happens out in the world's not Las Vegas, and what happens there doesn 't stay there. it comes here, and we just need to be smarter about it. we need to be prepared for it.
0: There you go. And i got to tell you, you converted me on your uh, Council on Foreign Relations website, CFR.org, the Global Conflict Tracker. I'm loving this thing, man. I can sit and look and see what's going on, the conflicts, and I can educate myself so I can talk wisely about it and understand what's going on. I love this thing. This thing's awesome. Cool. Good. There you you go. So, uh, Richard, it was wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for being on the show and spending some time with us and sharing all of your wonderful knowledge. Well, not all of it, but you know, a, a good portion, a portion of it, an hour's worth of it. <laughs> I shared one hundred ten percent of it. I told you more than I know. Chris. Oh, oh, great! Uh, so, check out the book, guys. You definitely want to check this book out. And read it. It's definitely education. It'll make you smarter as you're standing around the uh, the water cooler talking to your friends, you're typing online, talking about your social stuff. Uh, Understanding about the world is really important to understand why we're here and what we're in. Check it out. The book is The World, a brief introduction uh, from Dr. Richard Haas. He is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, he wrote 14 other books, so check them out as well, right? (laughs) Thanks amount for tuning in. Be sure to see the video version of this. If you've been listening to the audio version on the podcast, youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Hit that bell notification button. Go to thecvpn.com. Refer it to your friends, neighbors, relatives, and all that good stuff. Follow me on Goodreads forward slash Chris Voss. And also go to our Facebook groups. There's a whole bunch of them. The Chris Voss show on Facebook. You can just search for them and find them. Uh, be safe. Wear your mask. Register to vote. Vote. I don't, I don't know if you know to register anymore, but vote. Like your life depends on it because it probably does. Stay safe, my friends, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in. And that should take us out, Richard. We'll put the music and all that stuff on and edit.
1: That was great. I had a great time. Thank you. Thank you you very much. That was fun, and you were very generous. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. You were too, my friend. I'll uh, send you guys the link when it's up in 48 hours. Stay safe. You too.